Hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends, you have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic. We are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Uh, newcomers, that is, both to recovery and newcomers to this podcast, Sober Speak. In our episode today, you're going to hear from Jake S. Uh, he is going to take us on the dark path that he had to endure in order to get where he had to get. Uh, I'm calling this episode, He Crossed That Line, uh, and many of you will be able to relate to that. Uh, he was not expecting to cross the line. He was not planning to cross the line, but he did cross that line, and uh, he's going to tell us the, about his journey. Um this is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Sober Speak is for those who have not made it into recovery, those who are in recovery, and those who got sober a long time ago. So consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Uh, if you're enjoying the podcast or just want to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. Uh, reach out to us at feedback at SoberSpeak.com. Just a couple of program notes real quick. We are now on Spotify and iHeartRadio for those of you who like to use those apps. And uh, please remember, we do not, we do not speak for any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb. But that's enough of that. Let's dive into this episode. Okay, everybody. And we are here at another episode of Sober Speak. I'm sitting here with my new friend, yeah. Jake S. Very nice. Uh, Jake S. was referred to me uh, from uh, a mutual friend of ours, yeah. uh, Gavin, yeah. uh, who has been on the podcast already, and I'm glad Jake was able to come by, uh, and um, uh, we're so glad he's here. Right, so, you know, I've read all these... Uh, not all. I, I've read several interview type of uh, articles before. They always say, research your guests to the nth degree <laughs> so you'll know everything about them so you're as prepared as you can be. Sure. I'm sitting here with my paper regarding Jake, and all it says totally on it blank. is Jake, yeah. it is today. Yeah. Uh, which means I really know nothing about Jake. Right. And I kind of like it this way. Uh, we, in fact, had a conversation before he came out, before you came out, I'll just talk to you. Sure. And uh, uh, we kind of uh, avoided telling each other about each other. We, right, we knew there's this podcast yeah. here, and uh, I just wanted to get you out here and record your story. So with that being said, <laughs> uh, let's just start here. I know that uh, you're... Uh, uh, well, well, let's talk about how you found out about Sober Please, Speed. Yeah. And then I also want to talk a little bit, I, I believe you're going on a little getaway here real soon. Yeah, anything you want to say about that, you can. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, so I heard Gavin D on your podcast and it's, a it's really a beautiful thing actually, because I, Gavin is a colleague of mine. We work in the same industry. Uh, we do the same thing more or less. And, um, I have known him for eight years for as long as I've, as I've been in the business and as almost as long as he's been in the area that we live in. And <clears throat> when I heard him do this when, and I saw that he did it and I listened to it, it's really interesting because he knew that I was sober, quote unquote. Um, and by the way, just to kind of identify yourself, sure. why don't you give everybody your sobriety Please. date so they know. Uh, Jake, I'm an alcoholic and drug addict, and uh, my date is December 20th, 2011. Okay. So... Um, he knew that I had stopped drinking, and I really don't say anything outside of that. Um, a couple people um, that in the workplace kind of know a little bit, um, but pretty much most people now, because it's been eight years and there's a lot of turnover, just know that I don't drink. Um, he knew because he saw me when I first started there, young buck, and has seen me now. He knew that there was a clear line of delineation. Something happened. Right. And he had asked me a couple questions about it before, and I didn't really think much of it. But 
the interesting thing is, is that I have been watching his journey, not knowing what he's been doing. And I've very clearly seen the change in him. And, you know, I'll stop him every once in a while and just say, man, you look great. You seem great. Um, you sound great. And I, in fact, I'm very close with his boss. And um, I've had several conversations with him. I don't know how much he even knows just about this is a different guy. You know, mm -hmm. this is and all in great ways. Mm -hmm. All the great stuff that he did before is still there. But this is a guy who's had a transformation is basically what I saw. And I didn't really know. Anyways, hear the podcast was just riveted by it, contacted you, contacted him and told him, I don't know if you know, but <laughs> I'm sober via the, the program, uh, have been since 2011. Um, and I just want you to know that your story uh, helped me in my daily reprieve. And so really the beautiful thing about this is that he, what his response to me was, I didn't know that you got sober through the program and I had always admired how you just seemed to shut it off. Right. And so isn't it amazing, <laughs> you know, how both of us were going through our journeys uh, knowing that each other were, were going through a journey, but both of us um, had really done it in a very similar way, you yeah. know, and, and I say all that to say that that was one of the reasons that inspired me to do this is because had I known back then, maybe if I had been open to showing myself a little bit more, who knows, mm -hmm. you know, um, but that it taught me a really important lesson, which has brought me here to you today <laughs> um, and really, you know, kick something off in me to be willing to be more open. More transparent. Yeah. Right, vulnerable, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, sure, right? sure, sure, sure. Uh, to where see if other people can benefit from yeah. them, right? And you know, and uh, just so the audience knows, I, I, I what well, we always, I say we, uh, with all the guests that I have in, and I've never really talked about this before, but I always pray for three things at the beginning of this podcast. Number one is that we may grow closer to each other uh, and experience that. Number two, that we may grow, grow closer to God. And number three, that we can lay down something on tape here that, uh, uh, in essence, can help other people. And so I'm glad you came here and are vulnerable enough to do that. Yeah, and let me also say that, that I don't know if I would have reached out to you had it not been so clear through you doing that podcast with Gavin that um, you are open to all different ways of, you know, however you want to pin it down, mm -hmm. sobriety, uh, spirituality. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how exactly you would describe it, but I could clearly see, you know, look, it's a reality. There's, there's some people in this walk that think it needs to be one way, you right. know, and I don't think you and I agree with that. No, no. Um, in fact, the literature, the AA literature really points that out yeah. uh, uh, in spades. I mean, in yeah. many times, you know, yeah. uh, you know, and like I said to Gavin, I know that, I, I mean, for me personally, I've been living this way of life for, when I say this way of life, the AA, Alcoholics Anonymous way of life for a long time. And so, uh, you know, I, I breathe it, I, I live it, uh, it's the thing for me, but Right. If somebody can get sober in another way, God bless them, man. Please, I'm, yeah. I'm way behind that. Yeah, yeah, me too. All right, so let's talk about Jake S. here a little Please, bit. Please, yeah. All right, so I, I don't know exactly where to start with you. I mean, wh when did, did you grow up here in this area? I did, yeah, okay. I did. And when I say this area, yeah. this is the Dallas area, yeah. by the way. Yeah, DFW. Yeah. 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 So when did you start? I, I mean, uh, was there anything that you want to cover over the first part of your life that kind of controlled? Contributed to where you are today. Yeah, we probably should, and I and I'll I'll try to keep it tight. Um, but yeah, I grew up, um, you know, suburban uh, North Texas, and pretty much as far as I can remember, my house was a war zone, and those are terms that my parents have used to describe it now as well. Um, and basically. When you say a war zone, yeah. you mean like a, a physical war zone or not verbal? As, no, no, the the physical violence was there in a way. No, no one, you know, my my dad certainly never laid a hand on my on my mother, but um, there were objects thrown gotcha. and um, mainly just incredibly the verbal and emotional 
drama was um, incredibly intense. I was the oldest child. Um, out of how many? Out of two, uh, me and my younger sister. And I don't know why. Um, now we know we were all going through our own our own demons, but um, everything that went on between my parents just seemed to you know soak right into me. And I saw it all. I heard it all. And I still don't really know whether it was they thought that I wouldn't comprehend it or wouldn't understand what was going on, or that. And what I think it is is that they were just so deep in it that they hadn't considered how it might affect me. Um, so the point of all that is is that early on in my life, I felt things very deeply, very emotionally. I carried a burden of their relationship that. Not that I thought I could fix it or anything like that, Um, but I walked with the burden of what's going to happen next. On eggshells. Yeah, on eggshells, absolutely. Um, And through that, I knew that I couldn't have described it to you that way at the time, but I knew in a way that I I had a hole here Mm -hmm. um, that was not being filled through anything in my life as a child. Um, and, and that moved into adolescence as well. They, my parents did divorce and, uh, you know, I was, I was 12, 13 when that happened. And I know a lot of people do struggle with the actual act of, of the divorce. For me, the marriage was much harder than, than the divorce. Now what the divorce did is it enabled my acting out. Uh, because different I've heard houses, this. yes, right, you're right. Uh, different houses, um, different set of rules. Yeah, yeah. And at a certain point, you know, I think neither one of them, both of them, realized I wasn't going to follow them. <laughs> so um, uh, there weren't really a lot of rules. It was kind of all, you know, from about the time they got divorced on to, you know, college. I guess um, it was kind of strung together how to, how to raise Jake <laughs> right. through a lot of trial and error. Um, yeah, and a lot was of... Was your sister as, as uh, difficult to handle as you, or were you kind of the, uh, the wild child? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. When we were young and kind of going back to what I was saying about me bearing the brunt of it, mm-hmm. my sister had un- undiagnosed ADHD, um, which in the 90s, you know, was kind of the forefront for that in a lot of ways. And um, so she was a wild child, literally, when we were young. <laughs> right. uh, I mean, running out the ho- front door of the house <laughs> naked, sprinting like a gazelle three miles before my parents could find her type of stuff. Um, anyways, you know, we they eventually got the ADD thing figured out. And actually, um, I was the quiet, introverted reader over athletic one as a kid kind of going back to how all that emotion weighed on me uh that was going on uh between my parents i mean it was really dark stuff the 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 trials of their marriage being verbalized was was really really i mean it was like you know Kramer versus Kramer is a fairy tale versus right. <laughs> versus right. this. You know, anyways, my uh, my sister actually um, kind of started to about the time she was medicated, um, she started to see kind of my path, <laughs> and she didn't want my path, and so she really you know grounded herself in church and friends and the family that you know we could depend on emotionally. Um, and she made a very conscious decision that she lived with and is, is living with to this day to not go the way that I went, which is a pretty incredible thing. Yeah. You know, I've said this before. I'll, I, you know, uh, it's, I have met people before that they somehow they said, you know, they were in high school, they started hanging around with the wrong people. They gave their life to the Lord and, and then they started in the right direction. And mm-hmm. I'm like, 
wow, yeah. I wish I, you know, yeah. like I could have had a V8. I wish I'd done yeah. that, you know? Yeah. So that's great. Your sister did that. Yeah. Well, and she had a really great deterrent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she had a really good deterrent. You know, every time I would bump my head up against something, whether it be, you know, jail and trouble at school, car crash, and there was a lot of them. Um, she would look at that and go, that doesn't seem very fun, you know? <laughs> and look, I certainly had uh, warning signs too, but I think, you know, that's kind of proof in the pudding of I'm an alcoholic and she's not because right. <laughs> she was able to go, that's not for me, you right. know? And I was never, I was, you know, well, we can get into all that. But. I understand. All right. So, well, let's do get into some of okay. that. So, so it sounded like, like you said, there was jail crashes, whatever. Yeah. Anything from that particular time stand out to you that you want to share? Or do you want to go into your... Uh, I mean, really like, just that uh, pretty much right around the time that uh, my parents split and we split the households as well. I ended up having to go live with my dad pretty almost immediately after that because my mom couldn't handle me she was going back to work after not working for 13 years um she uh was really sick my whole life which we'll get into she had a degenerative heart problem that um led to a heart transplant a few years ago um and uh and she couldn't we were not we we could not be in the same so i went to live with my dad my sister stayed with my mom um, and pretty much from that time, that's where drugs and alcohol started. Okay. Um, and there really was no limit on any of it. Yeah. Um, there was one, which we'll, we'll get into, but uh, pretty much anything you could think of that a, that a 12 to 16-year-old could get their hands on, I was in it whenever I could. Um, and <clears throat> there were, like I said, you know, minor repercussions throughout all of that a parent finds something or i get in a little run-in with the police um you know uh one i think like two or three first day of summers in a row mm -hmm. i ended up either in a run-in with the cops or in the hospital and so i would get grounded on the first day of summer <laughs> like three three oh, summers no. in a row um and one of them in fact was ended with me in the hospital uh, and before they could even treat my my wounds, my dad was yelling to get me drug tested, <laughs> and rightfully so because um, there was drugs were the reason I was in that predicament. But um, yeah, so all, through all of that, I somehow managed to get decent grades, good grades because I had a lot of extracurricular stuff that gave me free one hundreds, but. Um, I excelled in music and acting, um, did both of those things high or drunk many times and <laughs> seemed to have no issues with them. I'm sure everyone else just resented me for all of that. Um, but uh, yeah, it was just kind of a roller coaster that seemed to somewhat stay on the tracks, except for um, having a few come to Jesus's with my parents um, uh, up until I left for college. My. Yeah. So where'd you go to? So so you went to college here in the at Texas? I did. I went or? to TCU. Okay. Yeah, I went to TCU. And um, just a small sidebar on that, that was a really interesting experience for me because I grew up in East Richardson, which if anyone knows the area, um, you know, West Richardson is, is predominantly Caucasian and um, uh, pretty standard middle to upper middle class. Um, and East Richardson is kind of this melting pot, um, where you're not going to get much over 25% at Berkner, where I went to high school of, of any ethnicity. Um, so I'm very thankful for that. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, I got to, you know, experience all, all sorts of cultures were, were very normal to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and there wasn't really like, you know, my family, my dad was probably one of the, you know, wealthier, quote unquote, um, parents that I knew. We lived in a one story house, you know, um, I had a car when I turned 16. Um, and he certainly always reminded me that, that <laughs> I was well to do. Um, however, when I went to TCU and parked in the freshman parking lot for the first time next in between right. two Hummers, right. brand new. Um, 
you know, that was a that was a real wake up call to what real wealth was. And then the other side of that was um, it was pretty much all white. Um, and that was interesting to me because, um, you know, just hanging out with other people who looked like me was was not part of my growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something I had to learn and something now I realize was just another symptom of my alcoholism. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, being kind of resentful about like, do I belong here? And again, looking back, I, you know, if I know what I know now, right. Um, I would have made different choices about probably where I went to school and all those things. Um, what I did with my time during college, mm-hmm. how much I paid for it. Um, all of those things, but really it, what it ended up being was just another um, fast track for drugs and alcohol right. for me. Yeah. Okay. So you, so you're get through, so you're in college and then I get, when did things kind of sort of ramp up that yeah. kind of got you obviously got into recovery? Yeah. Point? Yeah. It, that, that's where they started. So the hardcore drinking started immediately. Um, I'm not going to say anything that's going to surprise anybody. We have a culture of alcoholism in colleges mm-hmm. in America. Um, and the group that I ran with was, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the number one seed. Um, it was a badge of honor to see how rowdy you could get, how disgusting you could get, the stupidest things that you could do. Um, in fact, um, there was... Uh, <laughs> There was an emphasis put on basically what kind of story you could have when we all met again. Mm. Um, so who could one up the right. other? Um, and so certainly, uh, you know, things happened there. A couple of arrests for me in college, numerous, countless blackouts, um, many, many drunk driving incidents. And I, uh, in college, I never really got in trouble for it, but there were more than a handful of times that I was pulled over and um, the police just like followed me home. I mean, yeah. it just, which I can't even imagine happening now. Right. Um, and probably shouldn't have happened back then. Um, but, and that is one thing that, you know, I know we're supposed to, you know, work through guilt and shame in the program, but that's one thing that I really still tr- struggle with is all my drunk driving. Hmm. Um just there's no um there's no group now there was not as there was not when when you were that age uh uber or lyft right (laughs) so i think nowadays there's almost and i don't know because i'm not a young person anymore but um there's almost kind of a social stigma against like why would you do that if you could just you know you can get a ride yeah but what happens is and you know this is that your brain functions in a different way once you have uh that the liquor in you i and for whatever reason my my brain was always attracted to a car even though i knew yeah going into it it was not the right thing to do yeah yeah so and I'll, i'll i'll try to wrap this part up but i um, all these run-ins, couple jail. Um, my mom was sober, still is sober, um, and oh. had been since I was a child. And, and does she um, get sober through a program? Yeah, or does she, through okay. through Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh. Um, my, and I probably should have talked about that at the beginning. I was kind of you know hearkening on the bad stuff, but um, okay. my dad's father was a real bad drunk. Now he's been sober now too for pretty much my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, but he carried all of those things. And in fact, he's told me more recently that he really believed as a dad, and this goes back to what we were talking about with my upbringing, but he believed as a dad, as long as he wasn't a drunk, he was going to be a great dad because of his experience with his father. Oh, okay. Uh, my mom, that was the bar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom, it really is interesting. She used to, I knew that she was sober. I didn't really know a ton about the program, except when I started getting into incidents, and especially in college, um, that stuff would come up, and she'd really come at me from an AA perspective, more so than necessarily a parent perspective. And when you say, like, would you hear, like, the things in the program? Well, yeah, let me tell you this. This goes back (laughs) to even when I was a child, uh, and I knew nothing of AA, uh, anytime something would happen at school, I'd get in a fight or, uh, you know, I would get a bad grade or whatever. And even if the situation was 
totally not my fault. Every single time, the first thing she would say, now, Jake, what was your part? What was your part? (laughs) My kids hear that, too. (laughs) And I couldn't stand it when I was a kid, but of course... It came back to me, and I will. I do want to say that um, my parents, you know, the the bad things that happened when I was a kid um, are things that I carried all the way through my alcoholism, and they are part of my story. It's a real thing, and I don't like to keep bringing it up to you know make them feel bad about it or anything like that. There's been all the forgiveness that can happen has happened, but. There was also really positive things that they taught me, and personal responsibility was one of them. Mm. Now, obviously, I wasn't learning that through alcohol and drinking, um, but for some reason, I picked up on the like being a good friend and showing up on time and stuff like that. Mm. I was able to connect with, but as soon as the drinking got into it, <laughs> then it was like, okay, your rules don't matter to me anymore. <laughs> Anyways, when I was in when I was in college, uh, I had one significant, um, well, after my probably second significant drinking incident, my parents said, you have to go to AA. And if you don't go to AA, you're not going back to school. You got to go every day and you got to get a sponsor, all those things. Um, and I remember, were you like a junior senior? Yeah, I was a junior. I was a junior. Yeah, I was a junior and I did it and I did it for six months. Now I didn't give up on some of the other stuff. (laughs) So, (laughs) but I did give up on drinking. Um, like the marijuana maintenance program. Yes, yes. And I did give up on drinking and I, I really, um, you know, up to that point and even further after that point, what I learned from that was, well, I can get a little reboot if I need, you know, I can, if I go too far down the tracks, I can, uh, I can go to a couple meetings and, uh, kind of sober up a little bit. And, uh, but you know, within six months after that, and I even kind of bought into some of the stuff at the program. Uh, I didn't get a sponsor. I wasn't working the steps. I was just going to meetings and not drinking. That was it. But I was also still in this cesspool of, you know, just... All the people you were hanging around with? You yeah, mean, college. Right, just, right, I mean, right. I could have tried to run away from my friends and I would have run right into Do somebody else. Group. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the interesting thing is that TCU is Texas Christian right. University, as you know. Yes. And, uh, yeah. Uh, I think well, it used to be a little bit more... Maybe uh, so. Maybe so. <laughs> but it wasn't when I was there and I still, you know, hear some, some stories now. But... Um, basically, it did all come to a head in college, and somehow I found a way to graduate. I don't, I don't know how, but uh, as college was winding down, I really got into uh, painkillers, mm-hmm. and this is kind of where everything ramps up. And did it start out innocently in terms of taking them, or was it kind of more purposeful, if you will? It, it was not innocent as in a doctor prescribed them to me right. and I took them. Right. But this story, and I think it's important because this is a story that's happening all over our country mm-hmm. um, yeah. every day right Correct. now. Correct. Um, and I was kind of in the Petri dish of this. Um, I had taken painkillers before. I knew I liked them, you know, but they weren't easy to get my hands on, etc. cetera. Um, at one point... Uh, I was introduced to Oxycontin, which is, for people who don't know, um, a very, very powerful Mm. painkiller. And you can read up on it and all the ways that it is different than your standard Vicodin or Percocet, Mm. but it is. Mm. (laughs) Um, And I really liked that stuff. And what I noticed with that was that, huh, I don't want to go out and drink when I take this. I just want to, like, sit on my couch and... Uh, watch TV, and I can even study. I can go to class. Um, I can't work out, and I eat really bad, so that's that's kind of the downside, but whatever. I'm feeling good here. Um, and, and it's mitigating some of the drunk driving. Yeah, exactly, like exactly, exactly. And, of course, the irony was that any time I'd be like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. You know, I'll just go out with my friends and have a good time like I used to. Well, I'd have one drink, and then I'd be calling the, the pill dealer immediately. You know, what do I need to do? Where do I need to go? Because I need it. Um, and my experience mm-hmm. was that went about a year mm-hmm. of get my hands on them when I can. Um, there that drug is expensive as well, or was. I don't know where Oxycontin is today in the whole realm of things um, on the street, but 
um, used funds that were not supposed to be used for that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and uh, thus so, it was not something that I could have every day. I kind of spread it out. And I looked up after a year of that, and I really wasn't, I don't think I could say that I was addicted to it. I didn't ever do it enough times in a row. But it was like a once a week, once every two weeks sort of thing Mm -hmm. that I really liked and really looked forward to and had to kind of go through with some effort to get to. Um, And eventually that day came, which comes to everyone who goes down this path. It happens for everyone. There's Unless you get out, this day will come. Uh, where I couldn't find any of that. And, um, you know, my friend, he started as my friend, um, but had become my dealer, um, said to me one day, he felt comfortable enough one day to say, well, you know, if that's really the feeling you're looking for, then um, I've got something else you might want to try. And, I've heard about this. Yeah, yeah. and that was, that was heroin. Um, and so my uh, final semester of college... Uh, spring semester of 2010, that would have been, uh, is when I first tried heroin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what was your what's your memory of that? Well, I really liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've met people who have tried painkillers and didn't like it. You know, didn't like how they made them feel, made them feel nauseous. Mm-hmm. Um I've never met anyone who tried something on the scale of heroin, of an opiate, who who didn't like the feeling. Right. Um, it is a powerful, powerful feeling. In fact, there's I'm going to misquote it, but there's a movie called Train Spotting with Ewan McGregor that Danny Boyle directed um, about heroin addicts, and uh, his kind of opening salvo, Ewan McGregor's, is you know everyone talks about you know what life we're wasting and how we're hurting all these people and we're lazy and all these things and what they don't understand is if they just tried it they would know why we do the things we do mm. um, because it is an amazing feeling and i really did enjoy it it's much cheaper than really anything mm-hmm. um and you can uh if you're judicious you can make it last and i certainly could when i first started um i could really i could really make it last um and i think probably within a month or two of the first time i tried it and this was when i didn't have a bunch of school going on at the time it was my last semester i was doing a lot of school in fort worth my dealer was in dallas so i would you know drive to dallas meet him in some CD place to grab the stuff and then drive back to Fort Worth. Um, and so there was some separation there, you know? Um, but around the time I was about to be done with school, um, I, I didn't know it at the time, but I realize now I, I experienced withdrawal for the first time. What'd that feel like? It was, it was, the first time it was just a weird feeling and I didn't know what it was. And again, I put so many different things in my system at that point that I didn't know if I was just coming down with something. It coincided with my last final exams ever. So I had been taking some things to kind of keep me up. And so I had a lot of stuff going, but I started noticing like I was sweating and I was kind of getting the chills and it's like, well, it's, it's like, you know, June, I don't think I had the flu, Um, and I thought to myself, I better, I had a job lined up, um, back in Dallas once my exams were over and everything. So it was like, you know, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to have to live with, with my dad. Uh, I, I better not mess with this stuff. And so I tried to hold out, um, and I, and I actually made it about a week, um, but it was only a, a couple days from moving back home and starting my job that I was right back in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So how long did that go on? That went on until December 20th of 2011. So that went on, it was, you know, luckily it was only a year and a half really. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, you know, in that year and a half, I lived a junkie's life. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I don't know at what point anymore. I probably could have told you when I first got sober, but I didn't know for sure where it happened, where I knew that I was, I was in deep. Um, but it obviously happened. Um, and 
along that train, a lot of things had happened. I got a DWI, and within all of the run-ins with the police, with drinking or otherwise that I'd had, I had never had a DWI yet. And now I'm in the workforce, and I'm dependent on to get places. Um, I actually had to eat um, my stash that I had on me when I got pulled over. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah, that was fun being in jail when that all finally <laughs> took took ahead. But um, th- so that set me back a little bit. Um, and, you know, I so was... So just out of curiosity, I mean, no, I am curious yeah, about please. that. So when you're in jail, you've eaten your stash, mm-hmm. and that does it hit you in a different way than it normally would? Or well, is it just all like on turbo or what? Uh, it's, it's not as strong actually, if you eat it like that. But the other thing is I was very drunk. I got a DWI, you know? So, um, I definitely got sick when I first got, got into the jail, um, and threw it up. So the bad part about that is, is that, you know, I was in jail for about 19 hours. So if I had been able not to throw up, I might not have been getting the other sick by the time I was getting out of there. But, you know, that's really the scary thing about the whole thing is that from the second I got into the jail, the only thing on my mind was how do I get out of here so I can get more heroin? Right. Um, And so there was just basically this long period where I was leaving in the middle of the day to go find my dealer. Um, the real ritualistic part of it was that anytime I would get paid, um, I did not have a bank account anymore because there was money owed on that thing. And it was now that looking back on it, it was like 500 bucks. You know, it was something that I could have managed Mm -hmm. to get even on. But at the time, that was way too much money. Um, And so I would literally get my paycheck on a Friday at noon. I would, at this point, I had my car back or I was driving illegally, one or the other. had my license back or I was driving legally. I would drive all the way to a checks cashed place way out of the way of where my office was. And I would go cash the check Mm -hmm. and, you know, I wasn't making a ton of money, but it was a full time, you know, paycheck Mm -hmm. and got all of that in cash, put it in a wallet and then drove all the way back over to this side of town where my dealer's house was (sighs) And this whole thing would just line up. And a lot of times I would, you know, convince him to, you know, hook me up before because he knew payday was coming and he would, you know, and what it really all led to was the majority of my time, if I wasn't, you know, at my workplace would be spent with my, at my dealer's heroin den where there was no light coming in, where there was cigarette burns all over the floor. I mean, whatever you picture in your mind of a heroin den, that's exactly what it was. And it was me and him in this room, and that was my life. Mm. Um, And that was really dark. It was really, really dark. In fact, I remember one time, uh, and remember, this guy was my friend before we were both in this together. Um, and at this point we're both just zombies, you know, where there's no resemblance of the guys we were before. Um, and at one point I looked at him and he was much further down the road than I was at the time. Um, and I said, you know, I'm an addict. Like there's no, there's no way around this. I mean, I used to say to myself, we, we've talked and we know people, we ourselves probably said at one point, you know, if I could only just like drink on the weekends, right. you know, in my head, I was going, if I could only just use heroin on the weekends, then mm. maybe I'd have this together. Right. You know, and after saying that to myself a few times, I was like, <laughs> I don't think that's a line of thinking that's, <laughs> that's like really healthy, you know? No. And if I'm thinking that way, then I probably got a problem. And so I was still in it and I had realized that I had a problem. I was definitely an addict and you know, it's, I'll, you know, stand aside here for a second to say that um, I've known a lot of people who have gone through this now, and it's really hard for people to get sober off of heroin. It's really hard. Um, And, um, yeah, I just can't, uh, 
I just can't imagine. Anyways, I was in that room and I said, I'm, you know, I'm an addict. Like I can't imagine not, I can't imagine being a heroin addict and not knowing that you're an addict. Because once you go down that line, once you cross that line, I just don't know what headspace you have to be in to know that it's fun. Now, you'll talk to people who know that, you know, who will do it knowingly that they have to live with this. I mean, everyone goes through this. Anyways, I looked at him and I said, I'm an addict. And <laughs> this is very morose, but it, I can laugh at it looking back. He looks over at me and he's got a syringe loaded up that he is about to inject into his neck because he had no veins left anywhere else. Oh my goodness. And he looks me dead in the eyes and he goes, speak for yourself. <laughs> I know that. I know it's dark, but <laughs> a little like, heroin Dan humor. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, you know, okay. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I, um, how's he doing nowadays? Uh, he's better now. I, I believe he's sober. Unfortunately, he lost his legs to, to this disease. So, um, uh, I haven't, um, we've kind of talked, but, uh, I haven't seen him since that happened, but, um, yeah. So that, you know, that lifestyle, uh, lasted for a little while. I would have, um, bits and points where I would clean up for a week or two, um, mainly cause I ran out of money and, you know, mm. had to dodge him because, you mm. know, and he always let me back, which was really interesting. But, um, you know, I knew I was an addict. I knew that this was a real problem and my efforts to quit on my own, uh, went nowhere. So I was basically at the place of, I knew that when I was off of it and I was sober that I didn't want to live that life. Mm -hmm. And the place I got was that, you know, I don't want to be doing, I don't want to be a heroin addict, but I really don't want to be alive. So, so how did you, okay, so let's, let's go up to AA. So somehow you got to, do you, did you, were you familiar with AA through your mom? You look it yeah. up on the internet. How'd you get there? Yeah, I had, I had been to meetings in college when I'd had, you oh, know, yeah, yeah, bouts of, no, right. okay, bouts of sobriety. Um, and basically where it came to a head was my parents finally found out what I was doing. And do you remember how they found out? Well, yeah, because I was, <laughs> I mean, I think they knew that something was terribly wrong. Um, but because I was using it in both of their houses mm. and I didn't have my own place to live. Um, but eventually they just like found my stuff, you know, or found the remnants, you know, and there's no denying what it was. And um, basically from that, I had nowhere to go and I had no money. Um, I had a full-time job, but no money and nowhere to live. And I remember the last hundred dollars I had, I went to my dealers and I bought $50 in dope and I left myself just enough to spend one night in the seediest motel that I could find. I mean, I wasn't looking for a seedy motel, but I was looking for one that would only charge me 50 bucks. <laughs> And um, I was laying there in that hotel room and I did my last batch. And, you know, I don't think I knew that that was the moment that I was going to get sober, but I certainly knew that was the lowest I had ever been. Mm -hmm. um, family don't want to talk to me. They're convinced I'm going to die and that they can't do anything to help mm -hmm. me. You got, I mean, and you got to realize my parents, though this was... This was the darkest it had ever gotten and the furthest it had ever gone. They had a lifetime of, you know, trying to help me right. and seeing it not work. Um, so I don't, I wouldn't say they gave up on me, but they certainly needed to see a lot more uh, in order to help me. And so basically what happened was my mom, though she wasn't going to let me stay at her house, she gave me the number of a uh, local rehabilitation clinic um, outpatient. 
Mm -hmm. And really, all I was going there for was a consult, just to, you know, for someone to talk to me as you and I are talking, a professional, and give me an assessment, which I had then committed to give my mom the assessment. And at some point between that hotel room, and I think there might have been like a week in there where I wasn't using, and I was couch surfing and still going to my job. At some point in there, I thought to myself, and I still hadn't been to a meeting yet. At some point in there, I thought to myself, could I give this thing a shot? Could I see if I could fulfill my humanity, essentially. Could I see, could I just give this one last hurrah and throw myself into it and see if I could be happy, sober, and living whatever life came out of it? And it was when I went into that consult that the light kind of clicked on. And I said, you know what? I want to I wanna give this, I want to throw myself into this. I want to, I don't want to live this way. I don't know if I want to live long term, but I think I owe it to myself to see if I can do this. Mm -hmm. And what happened in that consult was, you know, they, and the the woman who I did the consult with, I'm still very close with uh, today. Uh, she's an amazing woman she said she still says today and she'll tell anyone this and i'm fine with the telling. we usually do not give heroin addicts any other option but you're going to treatment somewhere far away where all your friends, friends and distractions are way out of the way um and it was the first time she had recommended outpatient to or i guess in that case allowed outpatient to a heroin addict and she said the reason was she could see the determination in my eyes. Um, and I don't know where it came from, mm -hmm. you know? That's a God thing to mm -hmm. me now is right. what I look at it. And so anyways, basically, my life became through that. They, um, it was outpatient, but I had a really strict schedule, and this is important. I learned um, regiment, which is very important in my sobriety day. Sorry, I'm doing the thing you told me not to. No, bang no, no, on the table. And so my schedule was I would go do my job and then I would go to this facility for treatment, which was really just a lot of discussion. It was very AA based, mm -hmm. um, a lot of group discussion, group therapy. I would go there for three hours every night. So work, I would have to be there by 6 p.m., done at 9, and then I would go to the gym, because at this point, uh, and you can see me now, the listeners can't, but I was 210 pounds. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I was really big um, and way out of shape. I looked terrible. I, you know, I looked like a, a junkie, except I ate all the time, which was, you know, a little <laughs> bit different. Um, and I would go, I would go to the gym and I would not get home till, you know, 11, 1130 at night. And I would shut off the lights and get up in the morning and do it all over again. So not only was I getting recovery, and meetings were part of this whole structure. Mm -hmm. um, where it's where I found my home group. They actually take everyone to this place that I become a <clears throat> home group. Um, and through all this, I'm doing my job. I'm getting three hours of recovery every night, and then I'm following that up with exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, which I definitely needed. And, you know, I needed to get toxins out of my system. I needed, you know, all that stuff. And I left myself no room to go do anything else. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, a lot of, I'll let you kind of play the host. I know I've been rambling, oh, no, but no, you... a lot of great things have come from, you know, that moment from, you know, December 20th, which was my first day. Um, I think I had been sober a couple, like I said, like maybe a week before, but that was the day I recognized as my sobriety day. It was the first day I was, um, I was in there and I, look, a lot of stuff happened during that time. My dad was not part of the, he was, did not join me. My mom did. She would come in for the family nights and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, had your dad just kind of lost faith? Yeah. Yeah, he had. Um, 
And we, like I said, we've reconciled. I understand. Since. Right. And you know what? I didn't blame him. Right. I, don't, I, I loved, wouldn't either. Yeah. Right. I would have loved for him to be there. Mm. And sure, there was a couple times where I, you know, kind of wish. But I also knew that um, that was part of my determination, too. I wanted to show him that I could do this <laughs> and that I could be a contributing member of society. That was really as low as it had gotten, John. Mm. I wanted to, like, just be another bozo on the bus, as we say, you know, my whole life, I was so, uh, driven and stressed and burdened by not being average. And then by the time I was getting sober, all I wanted was to be average. That's the (laughs) only thing in the world I wanted was to be able to get up at a decent time in the morning and do my job and be able to, you know, put money away and feed myself. It seems so basic. And so many people around the world can do it, you know, who have much bigger problems than I do. Um, But it was so hard for me, you know? Just the normal day-to-day, like you said, bozo on the bus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Be a worker among Mm workers and a friend among friends. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you so obviously you got sober then, and and that that's been like seven years now. Yeah, uh, I you know kind of take <laughs> me through a run on your seven years of sobriety, whatever sure, you were sure yeah, about that. Sure, well, it, you know it hasn't been without its you know distractions, and obviously uh, there there have been bumpy roads. A lot of them came right within the time that I was first getting sober. Um, <laughs> Welcome to the club, yeah, brother. I know, I know, I know. My mom went through her heart transplants during that period during the first six months i was sober um i went through a heart transplant heart transplant new heart Um, my goodness yeah i went through some some basically trials at my job that had come from my actions when i had been out um and you know what looking back like i don't i doubt anybody really noticed or remembered um that um, you know, I came up against strife because I've had such a great career since then. Um, but yeah, you know, for the first, I, you know, people do 90 and 90. I did 180 and 180. Um, and I was, I took all those, you know, stresses that went into doing everything else and I put them into the rooms, you know, and I, I just made a commitment to no matter what else was going on, I'm going to be at this meeting, you know, um, got a great sponsor, uh, g- great people around me, just, just incredible. The, the rooms I stuck with and the ones I still go to today, um, there's nothing, there's no special enlightenment. They're just people that I trust right. and that I know work this thing right. every day, you know, mm-hmm. and they're not going to say anything edgewise about anybody else. They're good people. Mm-hmm. That's what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted good people in my life. Um, I wanted people who could deal with life on life's terms and a, a calm. I had, I say this when I tell my story now and really pretty much every meeting I go to, um, that hole that I had, I don't know. Could I have known when I was eight years old that that hole could be filled by AA? I, yeah. I don't know. I don't even think you could have told me the first time I went into the rooms when I was 22 that it could have done that. Um, but I never experienced true happiness, contentment, being content, peace. I never experienced peace until AA. So even before I ever used a drink or a drug, I didn't know it at the time. I would have moments of elation or moments of joy, but I lived a manic life my entire life, ups and downs, never in the middle. And I always envied people who, you know, couldn't. <laughs> I envied them somewhere, but I also, like I said, was driven to be larger than life. Didn't want to fly under the radar. Yeah, you wanted to exactly, be noticed. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I have my bad days, certainly, you know. Um, and I've had more of them, more of them recently. And I, I, I talked to you about kind of why this is serendipitous that you and I are are meeting right now. Correct, yes. You know, I've probably been closer to the edge, and it's been seven years over the past three months than I have been in seven years. Tell me about the edge. I think I know what you're talking about, but go ahead and describe that. Well, um, 
you know, I've experienced a lot of success in my career um, over the past three years, and th- that climb is is continuing to happen, and I'm really grateful for that. But with that comes a lot more stress, responsibility. You know, most people I think are in a job where figures are a big thing and you're, you can be really weighted down by sort of the amount of money that is dependent on you to make everything go. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's been kind of new, you know, with that success comes, new stressors that are, you know, I always got to be on my A game and I've worked hard my whole career, like really, really hard. And I've continued that regiment thing probably to an unhealthy degree um, because I'm not going to a meeting every single night and um, having to go to three hours of recovery every single night, but I'm still driving myself to stay away from the distractions the same way. So that goes into work. Um, anyways, through all that, my mom's health has taken a really bad turn and she has been, so basically she got the heart transplant that is just a couple months after I got sober and essentially what happened is the medication to save her new heart destroyed her kidneys. (sighs) Yeah. And you know, we, she's been on dialysis for about a year and a half now, and we knew that was going to be a thing, and we were learning to deal with that. And look, my mom's been having hospital visits my whole life, ER visits my whole life. So it's not a new thing when she goes in. It's not a surprise when she goes into the ER. Mm-hmm. She went into the ER on April 12th, and she has not been home. And so it's, you know, it's July as we're recording this. So mm-hmm. um, she just can't stay healthy. There's not really any signs of getting on the transplant list at this point because she can't be healthy enough to, um, you know, every time we take a step forward, there's two steps back. Um, and I'm not even, you know, I'm, I'm living with a lot of guilt because I'm not spending that much time there. Uh, my sister just had a baby four months ago. Uh, now she is a teacher, so she's off for the summer. So she has a little more time on her hands. Um, but I'm sure she'd love to be devoting all of it to her newborn son, you know, (laughs) but she has that gear that I don't have. She has that caretaker gear. Um, and God bless her. I'm so thankful to have her because she's managing all of this stuff and she's keeping the doctors honest and all those things. But you know, um, I'm preparing to go on this 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 trip. I'm going to Europe tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I've never taken a vacation ever. Really? <laughs> no. The longest I've ever been gone is one workday. So I've taken lots of like long weekends and stuff really? like that. Not even lots. I've taken a few long weekends and gone somewhere. But I've never in eight years of being in the workforce uh, taken a week off, eight days off. I've never been to Europe. Um, and it's been a lot of stress to get ready to go. In fact, I'm, you know, logic would have told me not to come here today mm. because I've got so much stuff to do. But what, I, what I've been experiencing with what's been going on with my mom and everything has been a good reminder of the, that time when I first got sober when nothing was more important than getting to a meeting that day, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why when we met and you said you had this time available, I said, I'm, I need to go do this. Like I need to go be there because, you know, every time I go to the hospital, I'm breaking down and that's really, I know it's not easy on my mom. Um, but, and it's, I'm scared for her, but I'm also just really stressed out about being there for my family and being there for work and then going on this trip, which, you know, I, w- I couldn't have known on April 12th that we'd still be going through this today. Right. But, um, I'm just, uh, I'm in need of, <laughs> I'm in need in a, of a lot of recovery right now. And I have been, um, you know, I have been taking more steps uh, over the past couple of weeks, which I'm, I'm really glad about it. Yeah. I have a group of, or I had a group of guy friends that, um, we all got sober at the same time and it was so cool, um, around the same time, you know, there was a couple year differences here and there, but, 
Um, it's such a cool thing. But life happens, and all of our lives are so different today than the way they were mm-hmm. back then. And we don't see each other as much, and we still communicate, and luckily I have the right people in my life to keep me honest. Um, but we are... I think kind of the interesting thing is like we're learning how to deal with these life things and work through the program together. And I wish I could say it was as easy as just showing up to that meeting every week when it's time to be there. Um, but you know, we, we lose track of that sometimes. That's right. Yeah. And we have to reboot yeah. and refresh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so is there, you know, to kind of wrap this up, is there anything in particular on your heart that you would like to impart on somebody who may be out there, uh, uh, a newcomer who's listening to this for the first time, uh, they're trying to get sober, they think that they cannot do it. Um, what do you, just any words there that you want to? Yeah, I'll say this. This is, <clears throat> this is kind of something that I stumbled upon and my friend who I was actually just describing, my friend Dan, uh, uh, gives me crap every time I say it because I say it like it's this brand new thing I came up with, but mm-hmm. you know, I say it all the time really. But <clears throat> this is kind of the way that I reconcile everything in this program in sobriety is if a scientist came up to me and said, Jake, we have found a way to legitimately and definitively test whether or not you are an alcoholic and drug addict. So we're going to hook you up to this thing and we're going to give you the results and it's going to say definitively, like, are you or are you not an alcoholic or drug addict? And if it says you're not, then that means you can go find some way to, to drink or use regularly. You just didn't find it yet. <laughs> um, I would decline the test because I don't really care if definitively I'm an alcoholic or drug addict. I believe that I am. Mm. I'm really quite sure of it. Um, Because if the price that I have to pay for getting to live the life that I have now, this beautiful, beautiful life, all the stuff we just Mm -hmm. talked about, all that stuff that's weighing on me, every day is better than the days I had even before I ever took a drink. If the price I have to pay for that is I don't drink or use drugs, that is an easy and simple sacrifice to make every single day to get to have this life. Yeah. So I would say to anyone is if you don't think it can get any better and you don't think you can get sober, it is there and it can happen and it will happen. And if you can look at it in terms of what would you give for happiness? Are you happy right now? My guess is you're probably not. What would you give for that? And if you're willing to give up drinking or using, just take that first step. Just take that first step to admit you have that desire and walk into a room. Uh, call somebody you know. I promise, <laughs> just call someone that you know. I think I, you mentioned it before, like, on one of your podcasts, like the six degrees of separation, like you will find another alcoholic very quickly. (laughs) It's not going to be, you know, if you can, if you can take that first step and just focus on that one, then all the other stuff will come. It will. Don't you think so? I think so. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. You just got to crack open that door of willingness. And, you know, there's uh, another book that I read. It says, seek and you shall find. Mm. And as long as you seek, as long as you're going in that direction, as long as you're knocking on the door, um, you will find something behind that door. You will find what you're looking for. But it's a matter of moving in that particular direction that you need. Yeah. God bless you, Jake. Thank you for having me, John. I appreciate it. Hey, listen, uh, prayers for your mom. Thank you. Um, you. And uh, I know that's got to be a difficult time. Um, I know I'll be saying a prayer for her tonight. Thank you. And um, uh, and in terms of your European vacation, <laughs> let's try to uh, have a good time. And maybe uh, you'll have another Chevy Chase European vacation movie by the time you get back. <laughs> I hope it goes. I hope there's less uh, 
There's less follies than that one. <laughs> well, Jake, yes, thank you for uh, stopping in once again. I want to thank you. Uh, and uh, for those of you who are interested in it, please go to our website, soberspeak.com. Uh, uh, your, your, uh, your, your support is much appreciated. We welcome your thoughts and feedback. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at feedback at soberspeak.com. Uh, and I'm going to end it here with a page 164 from the big book. And it says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Mr. Jake Guest, thank you for stopping in. Thank you.